Greetings and welcome to Mind Matters News. This week, we're continuing our discussion with Pat Flynn, Stuart Goetz, and Charles Taliaferro, diving into arguments in favor of substance dualism. We would encourage you to listen to the first part of this conversation if you've not already done so. Enjoy! Okay, so now that we have uh, that that brief but somewhat complicated history of the soul on the table, and these these debates are tough, right? As as all debates in philosophy are, help help convince us of sub, of substance dualism in the in the broad sense. What what sort of arguments? What sort of motivations? And we already hinted at one: is that it seems that most of us just have these very strong du- call them dualistic seemings, right? It just seems like this is the common sense way that we just sort of experience that the, the world and uh, really ourselves. Uh, is presented to us, but either expanding upon that or going beyond that, let's let's now consider some of the some of the arguments and reasons that you think point in the direction of of dualism, if you wouldn't mind. Whoever wants to take that first, go ahead. I've been going first here, so I'll let Charles go first. Well, I think we're. I, I'm fair, Charles. I'm fair. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I think we're. Um, Stu and I are uh, aligned. Um, is in believing in the primacy of uh, self-awareness of ourselves as substantial beings over time. And that this stands way over against um, a very um, late 19th century, but mostly 20th century, early 21st century materialist view that we are more convinced of the reality and the identity of physical bodies than we are of the mind or the soul. The, the, The latter seems so hopelessly abstract. But really, our sense, and I think the sense of many of us, is that really it's self-awareness or the first-person point of view that has primacy over the third-person point of view. If somebody says to me, well, look, um, what makes you that this animal rather than that animal? I wouldn't know what this or that refers to, unless I had an awareness of myself as a subject over time. Yeah. That animal means simply the animal that the speaker is drawing attention to, or and, and so on. So um, our sense of our understanding of ourselves existing over time, which is strict, we may undergo all kinds of amnesia and visual agnosia, you know, we, we, we lose our sense of the familiarity of objects around us. But really, we understand what it is for um, Pat, Charles, to to exist over time. But the existence of our bodies are something uh, quite different in the sense that it is um, we're gaining and losing cellular parts all the time. It is, as um, one philosopher, Joseph Butler, said, it's existing over time in an uh, imperfect fashion and, and as an aggregate or as a bundle that is uh, has detachable parts and is being renewed and so on. Whereas self-identity seems in a technical sense to be simple. Mm. That is, it's not composed of detachable parts. Yes, you may talk about different aspects of your identity and uh, the dreams you have versus the desires you have and different aspects, but it's different aspects of the self-same person. Now, I put a little more stock in Descartes' original argument for mind-body dualism. He does ground his understanding of the the self in in self-awareness, the famous cogito, backed up by his um, atheistic argument, giving him confidence in his cognition. But uh, he believes, and this is a a recent argument of Richard Swinburne's as well, uh, that 
it is uh, conceivable, whether it happens or not, that persons may inv- may survive the death of their bodies or their dissolution, their, their non-existence, body switching, reincarnation, and, and so on. All of these persistence conditions seem radically different from our concept of what it is to be a body, which is why, going back to what I was saying earlier, the reason why some people think that dualism goes all the way back is because of belief in that a person could persist even after the biological decom- decomposition of their body. Mm-hmm. And this this indicates something that, that there's more to it. And I find actually my students and well, and others too, uh, to differ on this, but I always find it disturbing when um, a relative friend parent dies and they say, we're going to bury, you know, Aunt Martha t- tonight. And I go, well, is she dead? You know, I always think, <laughs> we're, uh, this is probably not bad, but uh, I mean, not good, <laughs> sorry. But when my mother died and the morticians, I called in the, at the funeral home and they said, well, we have your mother here. And I said, well, we'll put her on the phone. And my feeling is, no, they don't have my mother. They have her corpse or remains, her body. And this is just a a fundamental and haunting uh, realization. I've been present with the death of maybe four people now and and counting. Um, And it is a kind of, we have to ask, is it an accidental change or a substantial change? Mm -hmm. And if it's an accidental change, well, the person's still there. Their body just has died. Just as a, a chicken would still be there after you've killed it, uh, and the, and the, and so on. The chicken's still there. It's in the refrigerator. But really, with persons, I think we are left to believe, or led to believe, intuitively, and perhaps our grasp of persistence conditions, that there's more to us than our bodies. And so I think that that, is, that will remain... A, a, a very enduring and deep uh, seated uh, intuitive grasp of our identity as beings that are more than our bodies. Yeah, it's interesting if I can just uh, chime in real quick how uh, there are certain thinkers, you know, more on the materialist and and strongly reductive side uh, that will largely agree uh, with everything you just said, Charles, uh, but they'll just ride the train of thought in the opposite direction and essentially <laughs> bite all the bullets that I, I I personally would never know how how to bite, right? You think of these, you know, eliminativists, right? Of, of saying, yeah, you know, you, you, you swap out the tire in the car, it's not the same car, right? You swap out my cellular constituents, it's not the same person. I'm not the same person I was five minutes ago, two seconds ago, whatever it was, right? Uh, I mean, minimally, that doesn't seem right, but I think it also um, would invite a great many other uh, catastrophic philosophical problems. I mean, how do you even hold a, a line of reasoning, right? If you don't have some sort of enduring, stable subject, you know, that's what I think. Intervals of time, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I think. I, I believe that our understanding of ourselves is not simply how we exist at an instant. In fact, I don't think we could. An instant is an infinitesimal. That is a mm-hmm. as a non-interval. So you can't even think during an, an instant. What I would do with students is I say, you can't even say the word avocado in an instant. Something I can say very fast. (laughs) Avocado! avocado. Which I had for breakfast, by the way. (laughs) Excellent. Mm. But um, it really, that's an interval. To even follow this sentence, uh, you would have to be the self-same person 
who began hearing the sentence as this sentence as who hears the end of it. So diachronic identity, I think, is a deliverance of our um, self-aware experience. Mm -hmm. And so the idea, and some have suggested this, that you only exist momentarily. Well, one is you can't exist for just an instant because that takes up no time whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But secondly, you have to exist for intervals in order to think, reflect, act, um, make motions, see things, and so on. So the idea that you could have um, Kant worried about there could be undetectable substitutability of the self is somewhat uh, preposterous or science fictionish because the idea that the self-same thinker would be changed, who heard the sentence, the cat is on the mat, <laughs> who heard the sentence, the, and then you have a new person think the word cat, and, and so on, is, is borders on the preposterous. So our sense is, well, at least my sense, but I think Sue and I share this, is that our understanding of ourselves as temporal subjects over time, so we don't ex accept uh, the person's are temporal parts, like a week made up of Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and so on. We believe it's the self-same person who endures over time. And to, to say that I only exist for four minutes or five minutes and I'm different, it, it really um, begs some questions that might be harmless, but when it gets down to matters of moral responsibility or accountability and our understanding is of um, free will and so on becomes um, very vexing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's really helpful. Thank you for that, Charles. And of course, if uh, some of these implications from the other side are right, then uh, I guess I'm off the hook for my promises, right? Because it wouldn't be the same person who made those those promises, you know, five minutes ago, ten minutes ago. So you can quickly see how it would invite certain moral situations that many of us again would would think are absurd. And then I think that's kind of a lot of the the philosophical game, right? Is you just you try to show the costs of certain position and you try to keep in increasing and raising the costs. Although I am quite impressed with uh, how certain thinkers, no matter how high the costs the cost may be, they just keep trying to embrace them. Uh, you know, um, those, I don't know what to do with at a certain point, but those are some very good. Yeah, go ahead, Charles. <laughs> well, I'll say something, but then I think I'm hogging the mic. I'm, I want Stu to jump in here, but I will say um, two things. One is, Anthony O'Hare and some other philosophers have pointed out how one way to make a reputation is by making your moves bolder and more and more outrageous. And Gilbert Ryle famously said, Minongianism, this is the philosophy of Minong, which was that there are, could be some realm between being and nothingness. And Ryle said famously, if Minongianism isn't dead, nothing is. Well, it's back. And <laughs> just um, even the idea that you can exist for only four minutes, Galen Strawson, very famous philosopher, son of Peter Strawson, he actually held that view for some months. He then changed. Mm -hmm. But it, it really, you, you get a lot of attention. And I'd have to say William Lycan is somewhat right about this, that sometimes there's philosophical, um, it can be fruitful to maintain very bold conditions, radical skepticism, go all the, push it as right. far as you can. And this way you can discover certain natural limits, you know, in terms of 
Whitehead said a philosophy often attaches a price tag to certain beliefs. So you can go with that belief, but it's going to come with a price tag. And when does that price uh, going to be too big? Yeah, over to yeah. Stuart or to Pat. Yeah, great. No, Stuart, definitely chime in here and expand however you however you like. No, I, I won't say too much here. I, I I just think that for people who are interested in this topic, uh, one of the best ways is to get a feel for it is to pick up different introductory texts in the philosophy of mind. And in my experience over the years, Charles can correct me if I'm wrong, but just about every introductory text I would ever consider for teaching the philosophy of mind, it always started out with substance dualism. In other words, uh, those who write about this stuff, the kind of default position initially is always substance dualism. There's the self and then there's the body. And so even those were in, in profession, quote unquote, professional philosophy today who, who write about this stuff, uh, they concede uh, from the get-go that everybody generally has a sense of the self as something distinct from its physical body. They write their textbooks that way. They think there's a problem with the view, and thereby what you have to do is consider their objections to the view. So I think even they will admit they start out with substance dualist self-body beliefs. There they are, the intuitive beliefs. But they go on then to say, but we have to get, we, they can't be right. Uh, there's, some, there's a problem with them. So even those who disagree with substance dualism or the self-soul-body distinction which in the profession for, for a long time now has been the majority view. The view's just got to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even they will concede it's intuitively right, uh, but there are problems with it. And, you know, Charles, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I know in I, you know, years I taught philosophy of mind, you know, new books would come out on the topic. Uh, but I, I can't right now think of a one of them that didn't start with substance dualism. Yeah, I agree completely with you, Stu. And some when I was at a um, visiting scholar at NYU and substance dualism was immediately dismissed in the first lecture. And yeah. the, the professor said, look, I'll give you a proof that it's false. Just after class, you know, drink a bunch of quite a bit of alcohol and you will eventually go unconscious. This proves substance dualism <laughs> can't be true. I'm going, what? Uh, I mean, the, the idea that what causal interaction causal interaction between uh, you know thoughts actions intentions feelings sensations nerve endings this is the most basic constitutional part of our ordinary ways of living and experience mm-hmm. eating properly having sex writing books and whatever activity you're involved in you have to assume on a pragmatic level your intentions and desires are impacting the world. John Searle once said, if you're going to have a revolution, someone's going to have to bring the molecules. In other words, if you're going to explain a a revolution, whether it's in Iran or Moscow or wherever, um, you can't do it by just molecular biology. You're going to have to get into desires and intentions and beliefs and manifestos. And um, Stu has an excellent critique of this philosopher, Alexander um, Rosenberg, 
I was going to bring him up as one of those eliminativists. <laughs> Please, well, why don't you bring him up and we'll see what's new. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I mean, let me let me comment because you bring up an excellent point, Charles, and this has always, you know, bothered me. I'm somebody who was on the naturalistic side for a while, and then I'm now I'm I'm not. You know, I'm a, a very religious person now. I'm, I'm very much attracted to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas, but I I could tell by your Iron Man poster there. Yeah, yeah, good. right. <laughs> but um. <laughs> I should probably change that. But anyways, <laughs> you you brought up a really important point. There's this sort of air, and I don't want to say this is just on one side, but it is it is strongly it is strong and I experienced it when I was doing my undergrad of this like absolutely arrogant chronological condescension towards thinkers of the past. It's like, okay, yeah, you, you drink some booze, you get a little fuzzy. And this refutes Aristotle somehow like like Maybe he was wrong about some things, but the man, he wasn't a—he wasn't an idiot, right? Like, <laughs> they always knew if you mess with the body, you get different qualitative experiences, right? They didn't have all the strong correlative mappings that we have in neuroscience, but that, you know, that's offering specifications of something that people always generally knew, right? You hit somebody over the head, their experience is very different. So, like, what... <laughs> Wait, what on earth is going on here? So sorry, that's just a bit of a rant of what you said, Charles, but it is. And of course, there are more sophisticated arguments against dualism. We'll get to that. But I always want to just address that one just with, uh, I guess, the tone of annoyance. Go, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I just had to add a footnote that Aristotle does. If you look at the complete works of Aristotle by Jonathan um, Barnes. Oh, OK. Yeah. And, and, anyway, he does have a solution for hangovers. He thinks that <laughs> I think eating cabbage is very good for that. So hey, it's a t testable hypothesis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, sorry, you wanted to bring up Rosenberg and, and Rosenberg is a thinker. I actually I like him a lot. I, I like him a lot. He's he's provocative. He's interesting. And he's sort of a guy that I think is just trying to like grab his fellow naturalists. And he's like, it's time to commit, fellas. You know what I mean? Um, we, we have this certain, you know, epistemic starting point. Let's follow this out right on through to its sort of ine inevitable logical end. And, you know, he's a nihilist. He's a moral nihilist. He's an eliminativist. And he is one of these guys that if, if you read his work, uh, he will just keep keep biting or accepting every cost that you you lay out to him. Yeah, I'm not an enduring self. Well, that makes you know meaning hard. Well, there is no meaning. There is no meaning in this whole book that I wrote. It is, <laughs> I don't, and I don't know what to do. Uh, honestly, once you get to with with a thinker like that or or a position like that, like I I, I think it's deeply self undermining. I don't think that it's it's sustainable. But that's one of those examples of somebody who I think is he's obviously not a an, a stupid guy. He's very intelligent, right? Um, and I think that he's helpful in actually trying to like run i think a, a ferocious reductio of a of a certain you know starting point which i think should cause somebody to go around and you know question and revise that starting point but rather he just seems to just want to ride it out all the way through uh so i like i like uh, uh rosenberg and I, I like the work that he does i i disagree with it deeply but i think uh, i think it's it's important uh, so yeah, sorry. Please mention whatever you were going to say about him. Mm -hmm. uh, Stu, why don't you go? Because you've written on him in particular. Well, you know, in, in some way, you know, I think we should be thankful for Alex Rosenberg's that are out there that actually explain the view that, that they hold and, and they take it, you know, take it seriously. And uh, I think when you have people like that articulating their view and uh, 
following it out to its, you know, its uh, reasonable conclusions, uh, you just see what the view really is. And so I, you know, I've written, you know, that Rosenberg, you know, he, the, the implication of his view is he doesn't write his books for purposes. And, uh, you know, this is just seems absolutely crazy. Uh, mm-hmm. But, I'm, you know, so on the one hand, I'm critical of Rosenberg, but I actually think uh, we should be grateful for him. He's honest. Uh, and this is the implication of the view. And so what I, I go, what I look for in Rosenberg uh, is, in addition to, is actually taking this stuff seriously uh, the way he seemingly does is I want to know from him what's wrong with my view uh, and what's the argument because uh, if this is where you end up we should go back and take a look at what's wrong with the intuitively plausible view and I've, I've, I've given you know talks, lectures on Rosenberg and my audience the audience is always this guy actually believes this stuff. I mean, that's always the reaction. Uh, they they can't. He takes this seriously, and I say, yeah. But in a way, that's good for us uh, because we now have laid out for us by someone who believes it what the implications of it are, and what we really want to know from this person. At least I do. Uh, I know, what's wrong with my view? Uh, it, it's it seems so intuitively plausible, uh, commonsensical. Yeah. uh, That's it for this time. We'll be back soon with the final part of our discussion with Pat, Stu, and Charles. Thanks for listening, and until then, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.